Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Tuesday the 26th of September. You can find this podcast on peterlewis.substack.com along with my daily newsletter and you can also get in touch with any questions or comments there. This podcast is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. It's the final business and trading week of the third quarter. And in today's business and finance headlines, beleaguered real estate developer China Evergrande said in a Hong Kong stock exchange filing that it's failed to receive approval from the Chinese regulators for the issuance of new debt as part of its restructuring plan. It cited an investigation involving its key onshore unit, Henga Real Estate Group. Shares of Chinese property companies listed in Hong Kong plunged yesterday on the news. Moody's warned Monday that a US government shutdown would threaten the country's AAA credit rating. Moody's, the last major rating agency yet to have downgraded the US's debt, said a shutdown would be credit negative for the US sovereign. Whilst any shutdown would leave government debt service payments unaffected, the ratings agency said a shutdown would underscore the weakness of US institutional and governance strength relative to other AAA rated sovereigns. The European Union's chief trade negotiator warned China on Monday that the bloc will be more forceful in upholding fair competition and defending its interests. Valdis Dombrovskis, the European Trade Union, uh, the European Union Trade Commissioner, who was on the final day of a four-day trip to China, said in a keynote address at Qingyao University Monday that the lack of reciprocity and level playing field from China, coupled with wider geopolitical shifts, has forced the EU to become more assertive. Outbound travel from China is surging ahead of the first Golden Week holiday period since the country allowed international travel to resume after eliminating pandemic restrictions. Bookings for popular foreign destinations such as Singapore, South Korea, Australia and Thailand have increased 20 times compared to the same holiday period last year, travel provider Trip.com said in a press release Monday. And domestic travel orders have increased more than four times. To discuss some of those stories, we're joined by David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. On Wall Street Monday, U.S. stocks were marginally firmer in the face of a massive Treasury sell-off and a surging U.S. dollar. The S&P 500 index rose 0.4% to 4,337. The Dow added 43 points, or 0.1%, to 34,007. The Nasdaq Composite closed higher by half a percent at 13,271. All three major averages snapped four-day losing streaks as they shrugged off moves in the bond market. The benchmark 10-year US Treasury yield traded 10 basis points higher at 4.54%. That's a new 16-year high as bets increase that interest rates will remain higher for longer. Yields on the 30-year note were up 12 basis points to 4.65%. That's their highest level since 2011. And the spread between the US 2-year and 10-year notes also climbed to 62 basis points, its highest level since hitting 56 basis points on May the 24th. The US dollar index rose 0.4% to 105.6 and hit its strong 
its strongest level since November last year. The index has risen for 10 consecutive weeks as of last Friday. The dollar strengthened against the Japanese yen as the Bank of Japan remained committed to its ultra-loose monetary policy. The Japanese currency sank a third of a percent to a 10-month low of 148.83 against the dollar. The Chinese yuan weakened 0.2% in Shanghai to 7.3110 as more problems at Evergrande sparked further concerns over China's property sector. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index lost 328 points, that's 1.8% by the end of the day, the most in three weeks, closing at 17,729. The Tech Index lost 2.7%. Mainland stocks were also lower. The Shanghai Composite fell half a percent to 3,116. Chinese property stocks were hit Monday after China Evergrande said it was unable to meet the qualifications for issuing new bonds. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index tumbled 4.2%. Shares of China Evergrande plummeted almost 22% in Hong Kong. Its property maintenance subsidiary Evergrande Property Services Group tumbled over 14%, while Evergrande New Energy Vehicle Group plunged over 22%. Shares of China Oceanwide nosedived by 26.5% after a Bermuda court issued a winding up order against the firm. Country Garden fell 7.7% and Longfor Group slid 6.5%. China AIN Group, which is a smaller property developer, crashed 72.5% as the stock resumed trading after being suspended since March the 31st last year. Looks like the Hang Seng Index is going to open slightly lower this morning. Futures markets projecting it to start at about 17,720. That's a loss of about 10 points or 0.1% when trading gets going. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. <laughs> Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And we have a global panel to talk with you this morning. First of all, over in Europe, thank you very much, David, for staying up wait, uh, awake very late. It's David Roche, President and Global Strategist and Independent Strategy. Morning, David. Hi. And over in Tokyo, we have uh, journalist and author William Pesic. Morning to you, William. Greetings. And as always on our Tuesday morning in Washington, D.C., we find our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Good morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Willie. Good morning, David. Great. Well, let's start with the China Evergrande story. Beleaguered real estate developer China Evergrande said in a Hong Kong stock exchange filing late Sunday that it's failed to meet the administrative, administrative measures imposed by the China Securities Regulatory Commission and the National Development and Reform Commission for the issuance of new notes in its workout plan, citing an investigation involving its key onshore unit, Hengo Real Estate Group. The group's unable to meet the qualifications for the new notes under the present circumstances, and founder Hui Kaiyan said in the filing. The administrative measures were related to the sale and listing of securities by local companies in offshore markets, and Henga was being investigated by securities regulators for suspected violation of information disclosure, and the unit's also facing, facing mounting lawsuits from creditors over about 1.7 billion US dollars of debt. Um, David, if this is the case, and Evergrande can't um, issue new debts, this is the grand denouement for Evergrande, isn't it? It, it can't continue. Well, I would have thought so. And uh, I thought it was interesting, your remarks about uh, the contagion to other players in the property sector. So it's not, as we know, an isolated problem 
and it's very important because so much of China's economy, we reckon 30%, some people say 20% is property. The whole chain from uh, local government financing and the way that they uh, played a part in, in the property bubble, and then through the developers and to the consumers or the, the buyers of homes who bought unfinished homes. <clears throat> I mean, this is a huge thing. And it, what it points to is the role of these legacy problems of bad assets and bad bank loans uh, throughout the Chinese economy. It's not just property, but property is very significant. So I think the, the difference now is it really does affect confidence. And as you said in your introduction, what the Chinese need to see is the happy consumer come back and lift his relatively paltry share of the economy, 30% compared to you know, 70% in many Western economies, but to lift it and go out and buy nice new flats where the conditions have been eased and so on. But of course, it won't happen mm. uh, because essentially you haven't had the root and branch reform, which is uh, devaluing the assets, cutting the loans, refinancing the banks, which makes a clean sweep of this stuff. Well, what needs to be done is not rocket science. It's been done in many, many countries around the world, but it has not been done in China. So confidence will continue to impact the economy and so will this sector. One of the countries it's been done in before is Japan, isn't it, William? You remember back in the, 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 the 1990s, Japan experienced a property boom and bust. Do you see similarities here? Well, I do in, in the sense that Japan is still grappling with these issues, right? I mean, the, the Bank of Japan has been at zero it's been in the, the down the kiwi rabbit hole for you know more than 20 years now roughly 23 24 years now and japan is still grappling with trying to find an exit and i think in many ways we always talk about japan as a cautionary tale for china and i think the property sector it is valid to be looking at china's property sector through the lens of japan's bad loan crisis and I think the biggest lesson from where Japan has been and where it is now is the fact that policymakers have just used easy monetary policy to kick the can down the road. And here we are, that Japan is faced with the biggest debt burden in the developing world. Wages are flatlining for the most part. And Japan is finally, finally getting some inflation, but it's the bad kind. It's being imported from overseas. And I think in many ways, you know, you can argue that Japan also hasn't learned its own lessons from Japanification because it's still trying to stimulate things with essentially zero interest rates. And so I think that the Japan-China comparisons are becoming impossible to ignore at this point. I don't think China is necessarily heading into a, a lost decade of deflationary funkish growth. But it can't be ruled out at this point, and I'm not sure that officials in Beijing are acting in a way that global investors are getting the memo. You know, I think in many ways, Beijing is acting, and they're taking steps to stabilize the property market. But I'm not sure that that signal is getting out globally the way that uh, Chinese officials had hoped. Mm. Barry, U.S. investors have been getting the memo for a while now, haven't they? Because they've been bailing out of <laughs> Chinese markets. But this is all happening at the time when interest rates are, are going up. And we're, as Warren Buffett says, um, when the tide goes out, you start to see who hasn't got any swimwear on. Yes, he was more direct. He said, you find out he's <laughs> swimming naked. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm reminded from, from both Willie and David's remarks Ben Bernanke said, you know, the problem with deflation, once you get into it, it's very hard to get out. 
And clearly, from what William is saying, that's where Japan is still at. The other thing that comes to mind is that、um, a lot of people said, I think it was at the People's Bank of China, look, the reason that we're not going to follow the Japan example is that they allowed at the Plaza Agreement in 85 for the exchange rate of the yen to skyrocket. And we are not going to permit that. And so far, of course, they have not because you've got a very weak renminbi. But、uh, I must say, both the comments of Willie and of David are pretty grim, aren't they?、Mm. David, do you have any、I、sense? Actually, yeah, I, sorry. Do you have any sense that policymakers in China know what to do about this? No.、Uh, I think, unfortunately, you don't have a, a corrective mechanism that goes to the nature of the political animal. In order for、uh, the many mistakes, not just property, but trade, aggressive foreign policy, all of these things,、uh, including the undermining of、uh, you know, private entrepreneurship and so on, all of these things are there. It's not just property. So you have a, a, a political system which has made egregious errors. In fact, I can't think of anything they have done. Uh, which has made the good burgers of Japan, China richer, better off.、Mm. So, to correct this, you have to turn around and say, hello, we got it all wrong. Now, what are we going to do to get it all right? And that would be such a loss of face for the leadership that those who put this argument forward would probably lose their heads. So, you don't have a correct mechanism to turn around and say, We got it wrong. We got to go back over this and really make a new beginning. So,、uh, you're getting bits and pieces, you know, of, of policy, of intervention, but that's not, that, that is not what is required. The, the problem is the damage has already been done, hasn't it? The, the confidence in the Chinese property market has been severely damaged、uh, mm. by, the, by the mainland consumer. They now have this sense, this fear that, that prices aren't going to go up forever and they're actually seeing prices go down. So they've become、um, very price conscious and、um, it's very hard to, to, to really repair that confidence, isn't it? That's so right. It's confidence. But there is one other thing. And that is the cohort of the population which is in the property buying period of their lives. That is the kind of 20 year olds to 45 year olds. This cohort is shrinking faster than the population as a whole,、mm. as a working population as a whole. So actually, you don't have the base market to, to sustain the same sort of property development as would be needed、uh, to get them out of the hole. And as was, was, the, was the case in the past. So you also have a demographic factor feeding into this. So, but confidence, of course, is absolutely key. And that's the difference this time. Confidence is, is ruptured.、Mm. Um, William, I'm wondering what, what the risks are of contagion here. Obviously, it spread rapidly yesterday across Chinese property stocks listed in Hong Kong and hit the Hong Kong market very hard. But there are other areas, aren't there, that depend upon the Chinese property sector. I'm thinking maybe of commodities.、Um, and we saw, you know. Natural resource stocks decline in, in Europe and the US. You can also think maybe、uh, stocks like, like consumer discretionary luxury goods stocks, all dependent upon a strong Chinese economy. Do you see risks of a contagion? Well, I mean, certainly the, the word contagion, you never want to see that trending on, on Twitter、uh, where China is concerned. And it has been for some time. And I think that concerns about contagion 
are only growing. And I think, you know, basically the point that David is making that it doesn't seem as if officials in Beijing really have a sense of what needs to be done here and they're not acting. I think it's a very valid one because you think that, you know, China has a variety of, of challenges that it needs to be telegraphing. One, it needs to be telegraphing a mechanism to essentially get some of these toxic debts off of the balance sheets of property developers. I mean, does does China need some sort of a, you know, a resolution trust company type operation the U.S. used to get out of the savings and loan crisis in the 80s to essentially rid these property developers of toxic assets? The other thing, too, is, you know, as David was mentioning, too, you really need Chinese consumers to be stepping up and helping to recalibrate growth engines. And that will only happen when the, the Communist Party builds deeper safety nets, you know, wider safety nets to encourage young Chinese to spend more and save less. And these are things that will take three, five, ten years to implement. And so there's a long term and there's a short term concern where this is a concern. But the, the contagion question is one that's going to be plaguing China well into 2024 and 2025 and i really i really think that if president xi and if premier li um really do think that they have this crisis at hand if they're that they really do think that they've done enough to stabilize things just wait again the memo is not getting out what I find odd about this is that Evergrande has been restructuring, trying to restructure for two years now. It's no surprise. The regulators have been very heavily involved in that. So for them to suddenly wake up yesterday morning and say, you know, Evergrande can't um, issue any more new debt um, after two years of trying to, to restructure seems seems odd. It either seems that they've deliberately done that to try and bring an end to this, or they're going to relent at some point and, and say, look, you know, we can't afford this to spread any further. We're going to have to um, tweak our our rules or waive our rules and allow Evergrande to do the restructuring. But that won't work. I mean, uh, they need clarity. I think that was a word you used. And, and that is dead right. They need a clarity of purpose, a clarity about the measures and a clarity about safety nets. And having an obscure kind of uh, chessboard game where Evergrande lets things get worse in order that the government realizes they have to be, go easy on them and then the property market will get better. And then, and then, and then. There are too many moving parts on the chessboard. That is just confusion. It, it even confuses me. Uh, and uh, honestly, uh, forget it. <laughs> okay. Um, Barry, t t changing tack a little bit so on US-China relations, the US Treasury Department said it's going to launch these two new US-China working groups on economic and financial issues. Um, to provide some regular communication forum between the world's two largest economies. In the statement, the Treasury uh, said the two groups would meet on a regular cadence and report to US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Chinese Vice Premier uh, He Lifeng. Uh, China's Ministry of Finance is going to be the Treasury's counterpart for the Economic Working Group and the People's Bank of China, the counterpart for the Financial Working Group. Um, Barry, what's the point of this and is it going to make a difference? Well, I think given the conversation thus far that we're having, it's it looks like a lifeline that, uh, you know, conversations with the Americans to ease some of the tensions got to be a positive development. But of course, it's very generic. It's very vague. Economic and financial, what's within it? But I think it's positive. I credit Janet Yellen and the administration for um, grasping this lifeline, if that's what it is. 
and we shall see where it goes. But um, clearly, given the tension, given the visits to the mainland by the Americans with no counterparts coming here, given the no change in policies on either mm. side, it's a small thing perhaps, but I think it's exceedingly positive. It's sort of going back to the days before President Trump, isn't it? Because there used to be these annual strategic and economic dialogue meetings with China. But then President Trump didn't think they were getting anywhere and he scrapped them all. But this, we seem to be going back maybe, what, six years to 2017? Absolutely. That's uh, like Secretary, Treasury Secretary Paulson. You know, he used to talk about how many trips he'd made to China. I think it was in the 50s. It's then. And uh, he set up these working groups, a strategic dialogue. That's a good thing. But boy, those are different times from today, aren't they? They certainly are. David, does I'll this... I'll say one thing, one thing about this. If you go back a couple of months to uh, the what's now called uh, the Washington Consensus, which I'm sure you both know more about than I do. I mean, Yellen and Blinken set out uh, their relationships with China in three chapters. Number one is anything to do with defense. The US will defend its defense. Number two is anything to do with normal uh, commercial matters. That will be great, provided it's a level playing field. And number three is the great challenges facing the world, which is we can work together on climate change, etc., etc. Now, chapters two and three require communication. There was no communication. Worse still, there's no communication between the armies. So they can't even defuse something before it happens. So I think this is an attempt to set up the communications which are actually back the Washington Accord, but does not change the U.S. objectives in this respect. Mm. But that's what China's frustrated right. Yeah, I think you've got it right, David. But uh, look, wouldn't you say it's positive? At least that's the beginning of communication. Oh, yes, but it does not speak to crisis management. It might, I mean, they might, you know, turn up in the U.S. under the financial um, communications that they've set up and say, hey, tell us what to do, but I don't think so. I think this speaks to the three chapters of the Washington Accord uh, and is very much about the kind of policy and strategy and excellence about communications, but it's not going to handle this crisis. William, from an international perspective, of course, international investors want to see the two sides talking and engaging with each other. The problem is, from China's perspective, they don't see these talks as having a purpose. The thing they really want is the lifting of sanctions and restrictions on high technology and semiconductor manufacturing equipment, which just isn't going to happen. So from China's perspective, they don't see these talks as having a purpose or leading anywhere. True. Uh, this conversation has me uh, regretting not spiking my coffee with something a bit stronger <laughs> this morning. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, I, I think, point, Peter, your, your point is well taken. But I think that there's something we're not discussing here is will this latest, you know, China-U.S. effort to improve ties, will it survive the upcoming election? Um, you know, the one thing that Republicans and Democrats in Washington agree on is we must beat up China. We must blame China for everything imaginable in terms of U.S. economic shortcomings. And what's interesting about the election cycle in the U.S. is, of course, Trump wants to come back, which I'm losing sleep over. And you know, I had I had dark hair before Trump became president, and here we are. My grays <laughs> are everywhere. But 
you know, you have that factor. But I think that in, in many ways, I think that you have the yen falling, you have the Chinese currency falling. And at one point, the Republicans in Washington go nuts and argue that China is devaluing its way to, you know, to faster growth at America's expense. And we need new sanctions on China. So I think in many ways, we're entering this election cycle that's going to be ugly. You know, basically, mm. President Biden is arguing that his son shouldn't be investigated. Our President Biden, I think, arguably has been a lot harder on China than President Trump was. Trump did a lot of crazy things, but Biden very meticulously, very surgically went in and hit China where it, it, China really didn't want the U.S. to limit its ability to access technology and that kind of thing. But will President Biden as well feel the need to lash out at China to, you know, to create the impression that his son is not close to the Chinese in terms of commercial ties. And so I think the election cycle of the next, you know, the next basically year and a half is going to be, well, less than a year and a half. But it's, it's going to be pretty chaotic. We'll see. What do you think, Barry? Do you think these talking groups will survive the U.S. election next year? Boy, I hope so. I mean, something like that. I, I think uh, what William says is prescient, perhaps. But I don't think it's necessarily going to happen. I think we have to trust the American business community. I mean, they are really dependent on China. And they are very keen to at least preserve the links that they have. Yes, there's no new investment going in. Yes, there's money coming out. But the American consumer is still hooked on Chinese products. I think it would be very risky for a Democrat or a Republican to say we're going to punish China further. I would say we need to watch Huawei because what's been happening with the American effort to stymie this uh, sophisticated chip and now the right. Chinese have it, which is no surprise to any of us, uh, that could get ugly. But uh, yes, it is a very delicate relationship that needs to be managed carefully. And I think that Rishi Sunak is to be applauded for inviting the Chinese to his AI summit uh, November 1 in, in uh, Bletchley Park. David, what about the EU? Where does the European Union fit in there? Trade negotiator Valdis Dombrovskis has been in China uh, for four days. He complained about the lack of reciprocity and level playing field from China. Also uh, warned about wider geopolitical shifts. And he says the EU is going to become much more assertive in defending itself from what it sees as unfair tactics by, um, by China. Um, China's sort of got problems all around, hasn't it? But I would have thought... Maybe the ones with the EU are easier to fix than the ones with the US? I think what the EU is signaling is two things. First of all, uh, the president of the commission <clears throat> around the turn of the year invented the term uh, not of isolating China, but of de-risking mm. trade with China. And I think that's what you're seeing happening. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, von der Leyen is, uh, is nobody's fool. Um, and her aim was to actually reduce the EU's dependence on China dramatically, but not to break the ties, because, of course, the EU, like the United States, is dependent upon China for things like rare earth to the tune of 90 percent. So there's a limit to what you can do. And they have to fight, of course, the German car lobby. Uh, the German car lobby, of course, you take Volkswagen, it is 20%, I think, if I'm not mistaken, of its sales in China. And, and uh, you know, the, the Chinese 
if the European Commission investigates, which it will, Chinese electric vehicle sales into Europe, which are currently 8% of the market and kind of doubling every couple of months, uh, then you have to balance that against the fact that you also in in, in major European countries have a lobby which is very pro-China, particularly the car makers. So I think it's very much, you know, the, the normal European thing, it's going in the direction of de-risking, which is actually a disguised form of decoupling, because as you can see yourself, I mean, if you de-risk and you don't buy this country's exports, then you decouple. But it's a very nice way of putting it. So we're just de-risking while actually we're decoupling. But we can't decouple across the board because we need rare earths and a lot of other things. But we will, despite Volkswagen's protests uh, and BMW's protests, indeed, we will go ahead and we will stop these cars flooding into Europe and wrecking the entirety of the European car industry, which, um, you know, they deserve to do because they have better cars. Uh, the Chinese EVs are better cars. Um, so, but that is not going to be allowed to happen. So again, it's this crabwise movement towards decoupling. Mm -hmm. And there is no way in which uh, the Chinese are going to manage to break up the Europeans and buy some more uh, Greek ports and some more, put in some more, uh, you know, freeways to nowhere in, uh, uh, in you know, some, some Albania. That, that is not going to happen. It's not going to work. Um, it never was going to work. So it's a pretty united front, but it's one which has to move forward in this crab-like fashion. So it will always be behind the rhetoric, the symbolism, and everything else that the U.S. does in this area. It will always look like, you know, the slightly weaker guy sitting on the sitting on the bench who's brought in because somebody else who's really good gets injured. It'll look that way, but it's going in the same direction. Do you think, William, international companies, including Japanese companies, because they operate obviously in China as well, have worked out what de-risking means uh, for them and, and what sort of steps are they going to have to take or are taking uh, to, to de-risk from China? No, I think that they haven't come to terms yet with where things are going in China. I think that there's there's a lot of trepidation, certainly. And a lot of the investment you were seeing from China, from Japan, rather, to China, has certainly slowed to a trickle new investment. Um, there hasn't been a wholesale effort by Japan Inc. to pull out of China just yet, but there is certainly chatter about it. I mean, you know, of course, we've all discussed before, one of the great ironies of the, the U.S.-China trade war of recent years is beneficiaries like Vietnam. And certainly Japanese companies are looking more at Vietnam. They're looking more at the Philippines. You know, President Marcos, um, who knew? Um, has turned out to be something of a, a stabilizing force just, you know, just so far in the Philippines. So Japanese companies are looking there and new. They're looking to Thailand as well. You know, the Detroit of Asia, um, you know, there are question marks about where Thailand is heading in the next five years. But Japanese companies are giving uh, Thailand a, a fresh look. But I think in many ways, there is this this effort here in Japan to reshore to some extent it hasn't been a, a, an exodus of jobs out of China back to Japan. But mm. we are seeing a moment where Japan Inc. is taking a deep breath, looking around and trying to figure out what's what in China. The, the more, the, the, the greater specificity or the greater confidence with which a China watcher tells me what's going to happen in China in the next year, the more I kind of roll my eyes. Uh, I don't, I'm not even sure President Xi Jinping knows where China will be in a year, <laughs> never mind the rest of us. So we'll see. 
Mm. Barry, what, what do you mean? I think we, I think we could say the same thing about the United States. I mean, you know, it's well, not yeah, as if we're problem course. free. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, look at the uncertainty surrounding the presidential candidates, the election in November of next year, and the fact that we've got an auto workers strike, that we've got mm. a deficit that is eight percent of GDP and growing massively over a trillion dollars, interest payments sure. higher. So this is a mess. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. And the Federal Reserve, who knows where the Fed is heading even two months from now, never mind two years from now. Um, so, I mean, Barry, your, your, your point is very well taken. Yeah. Barry, what's the latest on the US government shutdown? Congressional la- leaders are warning that we're a week away from um, a shutdown. Moody's uh, is saying this is going to be credit negative for the US sovereign and, and will consider downgrading US's debt. How, how big a problem is this and how likely is it ha- to happen, do you think? Well, it's very hard to handicap, but it's really the test of Kevin McCarthy as speaker, because uh, if he can't handle this recalcitrant rebellion on his far right, then his term is not going to be a happy one as as speaker of the House. He's only got, what, five more days to put this thing together. Um, These people on the Republican right are just trying to make a point. They know very well that all the spending cuts they're advocating would die in the Senate anyway. So what is the point? But it's mm. very hard to handicap. Mm. And, and how big a threat is it to, uh, to the economy? I don't think it's a much of a threat for the economy. Having been a government employee for 30 years, obviously government workers will be paid. You know, pension and Social Security checks will go out. There may be slight delay, but most of all, there will be anxiety throughout the media, which translates into the people at large. So it's not good. And the Republicans always lose these conflicts. Mm. But this time, there there isn't the threat of a debt default, is there? This is different from what we saw um, earlier in the year when there was also the threat of a shutdown, but a, a debt default at the same time. That isn't on the table, is it? Well, that's true. But I guess with the rating agencies, it doesn't make much difference. Mm. I mean, the fact that the debt gets serviced is something, you know, the, the debt of most developing countries gets serviced. Uh, even it's it's extremely frustrating as an observer to see this unfold yet again. Mm. And, and when you look at it, David, internationally, um, how, how does this look from a, a sort of an investor's perspective, from a risk perspective in terms of the damage it could do to the U.S. economy? Look, I, I discussed it yeah, over the last couple of days with uh, some of my clients who are kind of, uh, they're not quite as old as I am, and they're certainly more proficient in their careers. Uh, but their attitude was yet again, again. Haven't we been here before? Uh, well, let's just wait and see. These things come and these things go. <laughs> and I said, well, well, what about the dollar and all this? And they said, well, as long as every Tom, Dick and Harry, which is 1.6 or 1.4, I can't remember the right, now 1.4 billion of them in China is trying to get every cent in his pocket out of the door into U.S. dollars, the U.S. dollars will be fine. Thank you very much. It doesn't matter what monetary policy is doing relative to the ECB or the or the BOJ, uh, or what the, what the lawmakers are doing. It, it really doesn't matter. All they want to do is get out of China. I think you're absolutely right on that one, David, because just look at interest rates. I mean, that's a fallback default because, uh, my goodness, U.S. interest rates are higher. So this is a place to put your money for that. We have actually, this is the one positive thing, perhaps, about the states. 
we've got positive interest rates. Savers yeah. actually can take their money to the bank and be rewarded. Mm, but the, mm, correct. But the markets have got to come to terms, haven't they, that interest rates that yields on 10-year treasuries are now at 16-year highs. Um, this changes everything, doesn't it, in terms of how you evaluate equities for, for the profitability of individual companies. They've got to think about when they come to refinance their debt. It's going to have to be done at a much higher rate. There are some real consequences, aren't there, from, from what's happening in the bond markets? Yeah, I think this is transformative, what's been happening with the Federal Reserve. And it's very interesting. You know, we had a strong August, now a very weak September in the markets. What did the markets conclude from the Federal Reserve statement? That they didn't have enough cuts in interest rates in 2024. That's the talk on Wall Street. Mm. So this is, yeah. in one sense, madness. You know, interest mm. rates are not going to come down unless the economy falls off the cliff. Do you think, David, that investors uh, have come to terms yet with the fact that interest rates are going to be higher for longer? That's the buzzword these days, or the buzzwords, isn't it? Higher, higher for longer after what the Fed said uh, last week, and particularly the dot plot, um, which showed just two interest rate cuts uh, next year compared to what they were saying uh, three months ago, which was four cuts. Well, you know, the market is, is I don't agree with the idea of efficient markets and uh, them expressing intelligence and rational uh, judgments of what is going to happen. I think markets are like the average uh, subway train. If you add up the average intelligence, you're going to be surprised, not by how high it is, but by how low it is. So if the markets, if the markets didn't know that the interest rates were not going to come down fast before the Fed had to shove it down their, or in their ear holes yet again, then the problem is they're stupid because that was always the case. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you're perfectly right. It influences cash flow. It influences the cost of refinancing debt and therefore the economy. And all those things you mentioned, absolutely right. But before the Fed actually changes course dramatically, uh, you would have to see a shock, another real financial shock. And even then, the Fed will try and print money with the left hand while maintaining monetary policy, <laughs> uh, tight monetary policy with the right hand, which is what we saw <clears throat> about uh, about the, the the bank problems earlier in the year. They, they will do that. They did it successfully that time because in the end it was relatively small bank and small number of banks. <clears throat> but if you've got a big one, then you know the pain threshold in the United States is extremely low, and uh, they would not put up the pain for long. I personally think they reverse course. Person. but you're not there mm. but what what investors and markets have got to realize is that uh, the the real interest rate the, the 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 effective neutral interest rate if you like is no longer two and a half percent which is where sort of people thought it was wasn't it the fed's not quite sure itself where the neutral rate is but if you look at bond yields now which are consistently above four percent it's certainly much higher than two and a half percent well, you know, this was the famous R asterisk, the R star, which is trying to measure what the neutral rate of interest is by measuring something which nobody can measure and therefore can make up any story they like about. So, you know, whenever I get a piece of research which says what has happened to the R star or R asterisk, I immediately put it to the side for reading at a period when I really have nothing else to read, which is probably when I'll be dead. Because it's not sensible. What is clear is 
the people, the, what, what is happening is that the structural embedded rate of inflation is higher. Therefore, bond yields are higher. It took them a while to realize that that increase in, 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 in inflation was not a short-term thing, which therefore only affected short-term rates. Now they know it's more embedded, it's going to take long, and it affects long-term rates. So that's all we're seeing. I personally would not get over-involved with where the neutral rate is, because it's a, it's one act of fiction being piled on another act of fiction to create a city of fiction. Mm. William, David, what a- you're, you're, giving me, you're giving me PTSD for my days covering the Federal Reserve <laughs> in, in Washington back in the late 90s when we were writing about P-Star. Don't ask me to define what P-Star was, but that was a big thing back in the mid to late 1990s. And then we had U-Star. We had U-Star, <laughs> which was the unemployment rate, the natural unemployment rate that nobody could work out either. I mean, the these na- are Jackson-Hole-type na- 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 Jackson na- yes. Jackson concepts. You know, which, to Indeed. which I've never been invited, and therefore I'm critical. But I've been there. It's a great. Uh, it's a great event. Um, nothing ever happens. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Nothing ever comes out of it. But it's a wonderful place to stand on the Grand Teton Mountains, <laughs> take, take a deep breath, and have some cocktails with Fed governors. It's hey, what could go wrong? <laughs> but William, what a contrast between the Fed and the Bank of Japan. Here's the Fed trying yeah. to make everyone realize that interest rates are going to go up and they're going to stay high. And there's the Bank of Japan trying to convince everyone that they're not going to go up at all and they're going to stay ultra. Right. You know, I'm one of those idiots who earlier in the year when the BOJ was changing governors, I thought that Governor Ueda would be different. I thought that he would step in. He would begin telegraphing an exit from 23, 24 years of QE. Wow, was I wrong? Um, I, I think it's a very in- interesting moment because the Bank of Japan is finding more and more that its decisions are being made in Washington, not here. And the problem is that I think until the Bank of Japan has a sense of when the Federal Reserve is done tightening, when the when the fallout from you know eighteen months of of eighteen or nineteen months of Fed tightening is fully realized, then only then can the BOJ begin stepping away from QE. And so, you know, you look at these BOJ meetings; they come and they go, and we pay a lot of attention to them. But the question is, it's like a test for Echo: Is anyone alive? at the Bank of Japan. It's just a very quiet institution at the moment. In Japan, we're just kind of flatlining along. And the idea that the BOJ will be tightening anytime soon or even tapering anytime soon is now very much off the table. And Japan's numbers, the the PMI numbers, are not looking terribly uh, encouraging at a moment when inflation is actually ticking higher. So I don't really envy being the the BOJ governor at the moment. And in the meantime, the Japanese yen is caught in the middle, isn't it, of, of U.S. rates yeah. and, and Japanese rates, and it's just plunging almost day after day at the moment. I was well, in the U.S. Uh, two weeks ago, and I'm get, just getting my credit card bills now, so it's it's personal <laughs> for me in terms of the way the way the ways in which the yen is falling. I'm sorry, David, I interrupted you. Go on. No, I just said there's one thing that makes this very awkward and probably untenable, which is the impact on the yen. I mean, there has to be a point at which you have to stop your national currency being rubbish because you want to transform a monetary policy into a tea ceremony where nobody drinks the cup. <laughs> that, is, that is, you know, at some point, that's going to tear apart. And they will uh, eventually uh, have to have to normalize monetary policy because it, it's just 
as I say, it's a terror. It's, it's as you said. It's it's a it's a tea ceremony where nothing ever happens. Not the sound of a mm. cup clinking. You can't go on like that. But uh, then again, weren't people weren't people make, making the similar argument ten years ago? I remember moderating a panel discussion with a uh, former uh, MAF official Sakaki Bada, who they call him Mr. Yen. Oh, and yeah. we were in we were in uh, Azerbaijan of all places. It was an ADB event. And I asked him on a stage full of you know, 300 people in the audience, I said, do you think the BOJ will be raising interest rates within five years? And he laughed at me in front of an audience and he said, that's a stupid question. Of course they'll be. That was more than 10 years ago. The BOJ <laughs> is still flatlining. I'm not telling this, I'm not sharing this anecdote to say I was right and he was wrong. More that just we've been saying this for 10, 15 years now and the BOJ just finds a way just to remain on autopilot and it's becoming less and less tenable, but here we are. Barry, is yeah, the, that has to come a moment. Barry, is the U.S. Treasury worried at all about the U.S. dollar's strength? I mean, 10 weeks in a row now, the U.S. dollar index um, is up. It's, uh, it's the, the main game in town at the moment. Well, that's true. And it's probably going to go higher still. But, you know, you find so much of this discussion about debt because, you know, the federal government has this huge debt, which is the interest rate made much worse because of the interest rate hikes from the Fed. So I find much more discussion that says, what about the debt? At some point, people will lose faith in the dollar and the dollar will collapse. So I don't, I don't hear any concern among the people I'm talking to, including Larry Summers, saying that we're worried about uh, the dollar being too strong. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. Great to hear your comments this morning. You heard there Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic, and also David Roche, who is president and global strategist at Independent Strategy. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Enzio Von File, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Louis Kois, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Have a great day. Money Talk.